0: Hey, good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining the session. This is the session on Is Aid Money Effective for Global Health? My name is Peggy Clark. I'm the Vice President of Policy Programs at the Aspen Institute and the Executive Director of Global Health and Development. Uh, we know we have some competition out there, so we're really pleased that we have this committed group of people that care about global health and development assistance. So if you want to come closer, feel free. Um, we wish we had thought to offer wine and cheese and crackers for the cocktail <laughs> hour. But, but I will offer you three fascinating individuals. Um, all three of them are personal heroes of mine. They happen to run three of the largest humanitarian assistance organizations in the world, and Work in some of the hardest places in the world to work, so um, we will begin our session today with short bios i going to tell you a little bit about each of them, and then we 'll move into some questions. Um, Neil Kenny Geer is on my right. Neil is the CEO of mercy corps um, i 've actually known Neil since we were in our 20s when we met in the Afghan refugee camps in Pakistan when we worked for seven 10 years children. ago. 10 years ago. <laughs> um, Neil is, this, is the CEO of Mercy Corps. Uh, he joined Mercy Corps in 1994. Uh, under his leadership, Mercy Corps has emerged as a leading international humanitarian and development organization with operations in nearly 40 countries, a staff of 3,700, and an annual operating budget of 308 million. Uh, Mercy Corps has distinguished itself by working in some of the hardest places to work in the world, um, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Haiti, and other, um, and other places, and is often one of the first agencies in those environments. Um, Neil is from Tennessee, which you may not uh, know since he's in far-flung corners of the world now. And he began his career working with uh, inner-city kids in communities in school, communities in school and at-risk youth in the inner cities of Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. He then worked with refugees in Thailand with Save the Children. Neil has an interesting set of of, um, relationships. He's on the Yale School of Management board. He's the one... um, uh, graduate member on the Yale board, he serves on the board of Imaginations, and he lives in, in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Uh, Nancy Aosi is uh, the head of International Medical Corps. International Medical Corps is a large uh, non-governmental organization that's dedicated to saving lives and relieving suffering um, by delivering medical relief, healthcare training, and development programs to build self-reliance. Nancy became CEO shortly after its founding in 1980. Uh, Nancy has distinguished um, her her life's work by um, providing testimony to a number of administrations on development assistance globally. It's one of the largest uh, humanitarian organizations in the world. Uh, Nancy also manages 3,500 staff and volunteers. And again, she works in some of the world's most challenging places, Democratic Republic of Congo, Liberia, Ethiopia, Iraq, northern Uganda. Um, Nancy has worked in Haiti in particular, and um, she has been honored by uh, Los Angeles as a woman who makes a difference in the year 2000. And she was named by Glamour magazine as one of the country's most outstanding young working women, among many other attributes. Um, and our last uh, speaker uh, today is, we're really pleased to have Sophie Delaney. Sophie is the director of the U.S. Division of Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontières. I'm sure many of you are uh, very aware of their work in watching footage of the uh, earthquake in Haiti and elsewhere. Um, MSF uh, is an interesting organization. The principle, its principle is of providing independent and impartial medical care to people trapped by wars, epidemics, or natural disasters, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or political ideology. And that approach has guided their work in every country of the world where they work today. Um, Sophie began a lot of her work in Thailand also in refugee camps, which has influenced her her thinking throughout. So welcome, Sophie. Good, so let's get started. I'd like to start um, by helping you to know, in the same way that I know some of these incredible individuals, um, and one might ask why you would choose to uh, take a career working in a place like uh, Northern Sudan uh, or Haiti or Afghanistan. And so, Neil, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what in your own life made you decide to commit your life's work to helping the disadvantaged and to working in some of the hardest places in the planet? Um, Was there a moment when you decided that you could make a difference in those kinds of places?
1: Um, Thanks, Peggy. The first thing I'd want to say is that since Peggy mentioned I was from Tennessee is that You know, the fact that I'm starting to speak first, my grandmother and mother would both roll over in their graves and be smacking me for going first. Uh, So I apologize. But then they would probably say, you know, whenever there's three roses, there always has to be one thorn. So I will start with that and and just say that, you you know, for me as a child, kind of on the tail end of the 60s, the tail end of Vietnam, uh, grew up in the South during the Civil Rights Movement. That those those forces influenced and shaped who I am, and I had a chance to learn from and grow from and be with inner city kids and I you know felt a calling during the killing fields of Cambodia, and it really was the firsthand witness overseas both of of the needs and and frankly of, of how much one grows as an individual um, through service, but also through being touched by these amazing ordinary heroes that. You know, we all encounter and experience in our work all over the world, and you know, I feel very. My life's been very blessed and graced by that.
0: Good, thank you, um, Sophie. Let me ask you. Um, Doctors Without a Borders, MSF, is an organization that I think many has become sort of a household word now. Many people know about it, and I think um, I can probably speak for everyone in this room to say, watching some of the footage for example, of the of the recent Haiti earthquake was really, really difficult to watch and hard to imagine you being there and your staff being there. So I'd like to ask you, what about your own personal philosophy has kept you going in situations like that? Um, what, what, uh, what has given you strength and what has allowed you to think that
2: MSF can make a difference there? Well, there are many questions in your question, but what has made me... Uh... Well, engage and stay in the organization is, is of course, that it, it's, it's so meaningful and it's, it's a kind of luxury to work in an organization where everybody is hugely committed, uh, full of energy. And uh, as you say, this is an organization which has built a very uh, uh, strong principled position that has allowed uh, to gather great support from all over the world. So, basically, we have the means to... Uh, to operate and to constantly uh, seek better quality of care. So this is very motivating for, for someone. Another reason for, as you said, it's very, uh, it's very difficult. It's easy to be burned out in such circumstances when you, uh, when you face uh, conflicts and, uh, and suffering. And the policy of our organization is precisely uh, to uh, send uh, staff for short assignments. So uh, I've been to Thailand, and after I've been to Rwanda, uh, Rwanda was a very traumatic experience for me, and I was offered a position in the headquarters for some months. Uh, but for me, that was a unique opportunity to you know, stay in the organization and at the same time take the necessary distance and digest from my previous experience. So throughout the years, it's, I've been, you know, I've gone back and forth to the field, to the headquarters, and every time I didn't want to finish you know, my uh, career in this organization by the headquarters. So I would go back to the field again one more time, one last time. And and it's been like this for 17 years. Mm. Good. Thank you. Um, Sophie, let me ask you in your uh, really distinguished career
0: running International Medical Corps, what's one thing that you're most proud of? I'm sorry. (laughs) I said, Sophie, I meant to say Nancy. What's one thing that you're most proud of?
3: I guess I would say we've had the opportunity uh, to really work with some really wonderful and extraordinary people in the various countries that we work. Our focus over the years has always been around training. And, in fact, it's one of the reasons I got involved um, in 1986. Is It was the idea that, you know, here you are raised, at least in my case, I was raised in Iowa, you know, privilege That is, I had, you know, two parents who cared for me. I went to, I be, went to bed without hunger, uh, and I had so many things that people um, don't have access to in the developing world, and the most satisfying thing is that when you have the chance to work with a person or population group of people at the local level, and restore some kind of hope through skills, through knowledge, through transfer—I uh, mean, through skills transfer—where you can actually impart, you know, some of the things that we know that they, have, they don't know just because they haven't had access to the knowledge or education where they can help themselves. I really think that the whole concept of self-reliance that so many um, organizations like mine are involved in helping people help themselves is what makes the work so worthwhile. It's certainly what I'm most proud of because it's our major focus, which is training. And one byproduct of that that I hadn't considered um, along the way until you know, the last few years was that so many of the people that we are working with in, like, displaced camps, et cetera, the, quote, the beneficiaries, become the healthcare care providers themselves mm-hmm. when, when they have an opportunity for healthcare care training. Mm-hmm. And that restores to them a sense of dignity and hope that they haven't had before, and that is probably what makes me most proud.
0: Thank you. Good. Um, so I think most people know that we're living in a moment of unprecedented uh, assistance in, in development overall and humanitarian assistance, and particularly in global health there 's never been more money going into global health we, this the last decade has seen the Gates Foundation make major contributions um, major funds the the Global Fund for uh, AIDS TB and malaria the uh, the Go- Global Alliance for vaccinations has made a huge difference um, and in some countries, we have seen some real successes we 've seen um, Reductions in malaria, we've seen reductions in, in, in child mortality, but in many of the poorest countries, the needle is really not moving, in particular in Africa. Um, Neil, let me ask you whether that's your observation, whether you think that's the case, um, and, and why you think that is, and if you think we should all still believe in development assistance, even though we are recognizing that we aren't making as much progress as we should be.
1: Well, first, yes, we should all still believe in development assistance because without that, um, you know, I think our our hopes really would diminish. And I think the bigger picture story, you know, is one of of some fairly dramatic successes. If you take, you know, the total developing world and you just look at how infant mortality rates have come down, child mortality rates have come down, um, you know, maternal morbidity rates have come down, uh, the Gavi Alliance, 34 million people saved, There's some really impressive stories out there the sort of or i see chris here organizations like path who bring such innovation you know and blend kind of market principles uh have done amazing amazing things but if you sort of if i don't know how many people here have read the bottom billion paul collier's book if you but but if you take the bottom billion that that seemingly are these folks that are trapped in about 50 55 countries 70% 70% of that population lives in Africa. It's a different. It's a different story. So if you take the the developing world as a whole, uh, life expectancy has risen for those countries not in the bottom billion. Have risen, has risen to 67. Those people live in the bottom billion. It's 50. If you look at child mortality, the rate in, in those in the bottom billion is 14%. Elsewhere in the developing world, it's 4%. If you take child malnutrition, it's 36% uh, in those. People in the bottom billion and elsewhere it's 20%. And if you just look at overall growth rates, the people that live in the bottom billion have had negative growth rates. In fact, those countries are below where they were in 1970, despite all the, whereas the rest of the developing world has made dramatic progress. And so I do think as an, you know, as an, as a community really committed to development, we are challenged how to bring real focus, real targeted, smart strategies to those countries in which the bottom billion live. And that is the principal challenge going forward for the development community.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Just, just to add to that, and of course, if, as Neil said, if you look at those countries in the bottom billion, most of them, or many of them are conflict areas or extremely poor, what we call fragile states. And that is, that is the central challenge because, in, and certainly in conflict areas where, where all of us work, you know, when, when you're trying to impact on, say, um, maternal mortality in a place like the Congo and you've got mobile populations and you've got tremendous violence, then the question becomes how do you, how do you create access to health care and how do you reach out to people when their lives every day are racked by some kind of conflict or violence or some kind of atrocity that's being carried out? And I think that there's been reluctance for, uh, for donors to take a risk in some of these countries. And these countries are the hardest hit. I mean, these are the places where we need to be, where we need to figure out strategies, where we need to problem solve. We need to look at and say, okay, populations move. You have spontaneous settlements. The situation today may have been different from the situation six months ago in a place like Afghanistan or Darfur, so what do we do about it, and how do we how do we overcome the problems that come with helping, trying to help people in conflict areas? And I would say there's a way to do it. There's absolutely a way to do it, but it's not a surprise that people living in places like that have had the least amount, I would say, of progress overall.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Sophie, let me ask you, um,
3: MSF goes into
0: really difficult situations and often tries to be the first. in. what's your formula? What's your approach? How do you, when you land right after the tsunami, for example, or right after the earthquake in Haiti, what, what has made MSF successful and what are the challenges it faces?
2: Well, first of all, um, after 40 years of history, we've, you know, we've evolved. And we could have made the choice of expanding our... Uh, uh, mandate, as we could say, and uh, our scope of activity. Actually, we made the opposite choice. We considered that, uh, despite of the magnitude of the needs, but given the uh, uh, development of the aid community, it was important for us, you know, not to try to do everything. So we decided to focus on what we did the best. That was really acute emergencies. Uh, response to crisis, especially working in in conflict areas, mm-hmm. and this is where we develop the expertise, both in logistics, but also, you know, in uh, in our approach to medical care. Try to constantly upgrade the standard of care, even in the worst conditions. And I think that actually, what makes us successful, more successful sometimes than others, also is a combination of factors. Is of course this you know, uh, experience that we've gathered. It's the amazing um, energy that we have in the organization by, you know, having new, uh, fresh, fresh blood uh, constantly. But also it's, a, it's a sometimes opportunities. We've been uh, immediately react, reactive in the Haiti earthquake mm-hmm. because we were there. We were in Port-au-Prince, we had hospitals, we had surgeons. We had been working there since 1991. We had 300 staff working there already. Mm-hmm. So of course it makes you, you know, more uh, uh, more reactive and we could save our, uh, our medical stock so we could also immediately treat the patients. Uh, it was more difficult in Pakistan in 2004 for the earthquake because we did not know the area, we had to rely on other networks that we had not developed, etc. So Mm -hmm. it it really, you know, uh, depends from the the context. But since we're working in 70 countries and in some of them they've been at war for so many years, it's true that in the Congo, as uh, Nancy said, or in Sudan or in Somalia, we have a good knowledge of the environment. People Mm -hmm. know us and it makes us even more reactive to the emergencies. Mm -hmm. Good, thank you.
0: Um,
2: I want to ask all three of you, what's your sense of breakthroughs
0: that are on the horizon in terms of um, development assistance and humanitarian assistance in health? What are some of the things that you're most excited about that you're embracing as organizations that really could be game changers in terms of having
3: significant impact um, in the work that you do? I'll jump in. I think one real positive development has been the shift away. It's taken some time, but the shift away from stovepipe or vertical funding and more into integrated programming. Um, we're starting to see that you know a number of major donors have been listening. You know to our, I guess our um, complaints over the years about these very disease-specific kinds of programs that create this tremendous. Dysfunction within the whole global um, health community, and um, you know that's been heard. And as a result of that, they're they're taking a more of an integrated approach because this is how we all work. I mean, you you know you can't work in these narrow little silos, of course. And in fact, it doesn't even play out that way at the village level. So I think that the the holistic, integrated programming, the outlook that you really have to be, look at something as an integrated issue and approach it that way. And therefore, you have to line the funding mechanisms up that, as well, that way as well. Because when the funding streams are lined up in a dysfunctional way, we all behave in a dysfunctional way because we're all twisting ourselves into knots to make ourselves fit into the funding streams. So I think there's a recognition. Um, I'm glad to see that. And I think that that will, over time, be a big game changer, assuming that it happens more quickly. Neil, can you weigh in on that question?
1: Yeah, I, I actually think I'm always, I'm tempted to kind of pull this around and pull it out and go. I think this has, you know, as much potential to be a game changer in terms of development, particularly in terms of healthcare, as almost anything that's come along in many, many years. I mean, when you look at you know the potential to just you know map data in terms of child survival, you know, to really map uh, you know where where pandemics might occur. To do, you know, connect community health workers in remote villages with information elsewhere. It's powerful. Or when you think of the partnerships that are emerging between the telcos and NGOs, community groups, the private sector, uh, you know, in terms of financial services and elsewhere, this is one of the most powerful things that I've seen. And I think it's part of, at least in my lifetime, you sort of think of there have been three big waves of development. You might say the first wave was bilateral kind of aid. The second wave was kind of the era of the NGOs, civil society, sort of our era. And then I think there there has been this kind of wave of started kind of social entrepreneurship, social innovation, and now social enterprise that's bringing in kind of a blending of for-profit, not-for-profit solutions that's pushing all of us traditional aid organizations to think differently, to do things differently. And I think it's representing the possibilities of breakthroughs now that are, are really, really exciting in so many ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Good, great. Um, I think most of us are aware of the fact that some of the recent uh, uh, crises in the world have generated huge amounts of private donor dollars assistance. People all over the world, huge amounts of money went to your organizations, many of your organizations for the tsunami for Haiti um, and others. And I think in some ways it really transformed some of the development organizations that receive those funds. But Sophie told me a story this morning of a little boy, 10-year-old boy, who sent $10 to Haiti. And there's a story written about him in The Onion, and he wanted to know where his $10 went. So he went to Haiti to see if he could find what happened with his $10. And uh, Sophie says there's quite a funny story about what he found. But I'd like to ask you all to comment on two questions. One, do you think that the public cares more about what's happening in the world with development assistance uh, and is is increased funding from individuals a part of that? And two, what can you say about what this little boy found? And uh, and tell us that story as it relates to sort of the question
2: of effectiveness of aid. Um, It's difficult to say if people care more, but people are... First, tell the
0: story about the little boy.
2: Well, I think you told the story well, already. What did he find? Well, he sold many Land Cruisers all around Port-au-Prince and hospitals everywhere and patients and food, and he just couldn't find out where his specific ten dollar went. But I think uh, the the answer to this question is really, as far as MSF is concerned, we've spent you know ten million is ten dollar ten million times his ten dollar mm-hmm. in uh, in this emergency. Um, so. Uh, is the public more aware or more, care more than before? You know, I don't think so. I think people are more aware, that's for sure. And uh, the role of, of the media has been instrumental and is instrumental in this kind of emergencies. Mm-hmm. So I think it plays a, get, a great role in, uh, in attracting the generosity of the people. It was, uh, however, what I have experienced because I was in the United States when Haiti earthquake uh, happen and I've never been such, I've never seen such a mobilization and so, I mean the, the, the generosity of the US population has been overwhelming and uh, it's been the same in the 18 other you know, uh, countries where we have uh, branch offices. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is definitely something which is uh, um, quite astonishing. Regarding the, I would not compare Haiti and the tsunami, because although the reaction of the public has been quite similar, uh, these situations are completely different. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the, the tsunami, uh, the imme- th- there weren't many immediate needs, you know. The wave just came, and th- there, wasn't, there weren't medical needs to, to deal with. There was a lot to do with reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And this is why we faced a very difficult situation when we received this huge amount of money and we had to call back our donors and say, we're not going to be able to spend it because we're not going to do reconstruction and uh, there, there is not much we can do. So in Haiti, we, we had learned the lessons from the tsunami and uh, we've monitored day after day the level of income that was coming into the organization, and we were in contact with our operations on the ground trying to figure out what was their capacity of intervention and making sure that the balance was maintained. Uh, and I think it's been, uh, it's been really a success because we've received uh, 110 million euros for, for Haiti all over the world. And our budget for 2010 uh, is going to be uh, 90 million euros. So we know we have 20 million left for next year, but we know we're going to need much more than that. But at least uh, the money that was sent for the emergency will, will be in a capacity uh, to uh, to use it for that purpose. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, Nancy, do you uh, want to? Yeah, I just want to comment a little bit about the effect of the media. And the, um, so I'm going to go back to 1991 during the height of the famine in in Somalia, for those of you who remember that. And we um, had been working there for about a year. And Bosnia was also, you know, later on happening. Uh, But it was uh, starting to break through. And we had a hard time uh, raising money uh, for Somalia. And then the media came in, the cameras came in, and it's hard to believe that this is when headline news was really getting big. Uh, and suddenly, Somalia explodes on, you know, in to every television around the world. And, uh, and and that was a big, I guess, game changer in, in emergencies because suddenly, far off, you know, place no, no one really cared about. Uh, Rwanda was another example. I remember the, um, I was there during the genocide, and it wasn't until all the people moved to Zaire, the camps, and suddenly, you know... The media was there, and, and suddenly money flows. The money flows that come in from emergencies are really significant. There's this window of time, and that is because the public cares. They are connected, like with the tsunami. Everyone was watching people on holiday, but people were paying attention. And in real time, they saw this happening, and they immediately started writing checks. In Darfur, I remember being interviewed about the movie Hotel Rwanda, uh, and because I was, uh, as I mentioned, I was there during the genocide in Rwanda. and So they are interviewing me 10 years later about what I thought of the movie. Meanwhile, we had um, Darfur going on, and Darfur had not yet kind of exploded onto the front pages of the newspapers. Over time, Darfur became more of an issue. The media started covering it. It was more of a chronic emergency, and suddenly funds started to flow to Darfur. So there is this silent emergency versus the one we see in real time every day has had a profound effect on the way money is raised around emergencies. The flip side of that is um, places that are really in need of resources so often get shortchanged because people are always funding the emergency. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Neil, do you want to weigh in on that, on the U.S. public engagement and if you think people care and how do you get them to care about this issue?
1: I think people care greatly and i think not just the media but sort of the whole new applications of the media with social networks and so forth and the ability of organizations like you know imc and msf and others and ourselves to be able to bring it real time you know we've got our our aid workers are out blogging you know you can bring video real time video it's not slick it's grainy you can actually train you know the people you work with nationals from those areas and so there's a whole education component going on that's engaging people you're seeing it you know in high schools all across this country you're seeing it in colleges across the the country and you're seeing people make a connection um, you know between issues and sort of i think there's this great awareness that there's kind of a seamless web of compassion you know that connects a homeless child in this country with a hungry child somewhere else. And, and I, you know, starting to get that sense that, and to the degree that we can make a difference, it's by thinking along that seamless web, you know, because it, it makes everyone your neighbor.
0: That's great. I appreciate that, Neil. You know, I have to ask this question. Um, all three of you are running organizations where, some of your staff are in, are in quite dangerous situations, and um, we hear about this in the news, we're aware of this. And I know you can't speak about spef- specific cases, but I, I can only imagine what it's like to be the leader of an organization when you're dealing with a situation like that. And it seems as if it's getting more dangerous, particularly for American organizations. Um, can you comment to us a little bit about how you handle that situation, if it is different, um, what, what's your sense of, of what that means for the work that you do? do? Does it mean you have to leave countries like Pakistan?
3: Um,
0: how, how do you handle that? Nancy, you want to start on? Okay,
3: um, sure. You know, I remember in, um, in Bosnia, and MSF and Mercy Corps were there as well, uh, that one of the things that I noticed when we were there is that suddenly under Milosevic and the Serbian militia, relief workers, local humanitarian workers uh, as well as um, expatriates became targets. Certainly journalists were targets, targets as well. Whereas if you were used to be wrong place, wrong time you got injured in the 80s or I guess I'd say. But I guess in the early 90s that changed. And I saw a fundamental shift of where you became the target. And certainly since then this has been increasing. It's a little bit like in some ways the elephant in the room. Security uh, is a huge issue, and one of the reasons it's a huge issue is that in our case, we're working closely with local populations. We're training the individual health worker. That individual health worker goes out into the community and they want to do something good. They may not want to grow poppies or you know, to produce heroin or be gun runners or whatever. They want to do something to help their community. Well, they become targets. It's one thing when you send someone from the outside; they become a target. Some, you know, you can get them out, but people go back to their communities. They live in their communities; these are their countries, their families are in their, these communities. Uh, and we've had a number of kidnappings and, um, uh, you know, killings, etc., uh, targeting of our local staff. We had a Somali health worker just a couple years ago who was a health care provider for this village. We'd worked with this health worker for years uh, and just executed, leaving the clinic one day. And meanwhile, the people in that village no longer had access to health worker, or to care. We keep this quiet because, you know, it, we keep it out of the media because we're in these situations all the time, and they, we don't want to um, re- jeopardize the security or safety of our local staff and we don't want to jeopardize our ability to get them out safely if they are in a kidnapping situation. So it's a real real problem. Neil, can
0: you weigh in on
1: this question? Yeah, I'm sure for all of us, you know, every morning, you know, you wake up and say a little prayer. You hope you're not hearing of the death or the kidnapping of some staff. I can share, you know, we're dealing with four staff who were kidnapped in Pakistan right now, which made the news. and one And one was executed, and we're still trying to get three other folks back who are who are held in Pakistan right now so it's it's very you know it's very very real and it's challenging and every organization has to think through you know really very very carefully what's going to be their security policy I mean we all have professional security advisors now when I started none of us did uh, you know for example um, you know, we have to, every organization comes to its own conclusions, you know, regarding, do you, do you provide armed security? We've decided not to up to now, but it's tough, you know, when you're operating in Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia, Pakistan, to, you know, to stay consistent on that sort of no arms policy. Um, in, you know, it's an internal, in internal debate. I think it's been particularly complicated you know it was interested in how many people heard general casey today you know who's just a brilliant man has brought a lot of great thinking but you know for me when you have militaries in these environments who are also doing humanitarian assistance and humanitarian assistance is part of a strategy of you know winning hearts and minds and you have major donor programs that are designed to complement that and you know and some of us take some of that money you know how do you establish and keep and preserve your own independence you know, in a population that doesn't always distinguish, you know, between that. It's it's a really big challenge in our community right now that, you know, we wrestle with. The good news is I think we can come together and have that conversation together as an aid community and also with the U.S. government and with the U.S. military. Mm
0: -hmm. So I, I know that the U.S. government is taking a renewed approach to the question of development and diplomacy and working on them together. What do you think about that? Is that possible? Sophie's shaking her head now.
2: Well, actually, I wanted to uh, bring a point on security Please. because you're right. It's, uh, it's one of the major challenges that, that we face. To go back to the diagnosis, it's true that there are more cases of, you know, attacks, kidnapping, and killings. But it doesn't mean that the places where we work are more insecure than they used to be. Mm-hmm. I think that we also need to look at, the, you know, uh, the scale of our operations today, uh, the deployment of aid. Uh, in this country, in this very unstable country, and the visibility of the assets that we bring in areas where you know, resources are more than limited. Mm-hmm. So um, just to put in, in perspective the, the, the situation itself, that to some extent we have created, we put you know, we're more visible, but it doesn't mean that the environment has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as we are concerned, of course, we have very drastic security measures. Uh, We have curfew. We have, uh, you know, for the movements, very strict policies. Um, I couldn't agree more uh, with Neil about the the necessity, uh, which is key for us, to distance ourselves as much as possible Mm -hmm from the parties to the conflict. But at the same time, engage with them and discuss with all belligerents, explain them who we are, what we're here for, and you know, also offer them the medical assistance that their family might need at some point. Mm-hmm. And to us, it's still be- a better protection than armed guards or you mm. know uh, an escort, mm. let's um,
0: I want to save time for questions, but I wonder if either of you want to weigh in on that question of development and diplomacy. And I think most of us were struck by, um, in the Iraq War in particular, the notion of the military doing humanitarian assistance. And I know that in the, in the new Obama development policy, which I don't think has come out yet, there is I- intentionally a linkage between the State Department and diplomacy and development more explicitly. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, Neil, do you want to weigh in on that? Is that the, the way you experience it on the ground?
1: Well, I think, I mean, my own, my own personal view is that, you know, it got a bit out of whack during, during the Bush years and that the, you know, the diplomacy didn't get as much attention as, as, I mean, development especially didn't get as much attention, but nor did diplomacy, and we led with defense, and maybe that was necessary. And I think, and w- what we did was, we really we gutted the civilian capacity of the U.S. government to carry out development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what I think is happening, I think it would have happened under any administration, because it's widely recognized that we need to rebuild back up the civilian capacity, both in the State Department and within AID. Um, you know, if we're going to get gains in these really, really tough environments, I will say to give the military credit, it's. It's, you know, in so many of these cases, and many of us could comment this, we, um, you know, the conversations that you have with the military um, um, are often, you know, more thoughtful because they understand the situation better than, you know, some of the civilians associated with the Defense Department mm-hmm. who are, you know, charged with carrying out a certain kind of policy because those those guys on the ground, you know, do understand the linkage to development. Now, you, Secretary Gates, I think, has spoken um, you know very very well about the need to strengthen development and diplomacy to complement any defense.
0: Um, I want to save some time for questions. So let me just ask one question. I mean, I think most of you know that Bill Gates was here yesterday. He may he may still be here today. And I wondered if you had uh, his undivided attention, if you had, you know, a few minutes with Bill Gates, and you would were able to tell him two things that you wanted him to invest in, in terms of global health, um, what would you say to him? So Sophie, there you are in a room with Bill. (laughs) So Bill, here's what I need to tell you you need to to be doing.
2: Well, first, I would like to acknowledge his efforts to to support global health issue, because this is really a a tremendous uh, and significant uh, effort. And um, I also know we we are extremely concerned these days about vaccination issues. You know, we vaccinate millions of kids every year and we're realizing more and more that the vaccines that we use are just not efficient and that in three years we're going to have to vaccinate again because the efficiency will last you know, will not last long. So I know that the Gates Foundation is increasingly interested in supporting uh, research and development on, on vaccines, and we, we strongly welcome this initiative. Mm-hmm. Now, we have concerns, and if I have uh, Mr. Gates in front of me, of course I will ask him to use his you know, influence to uh, help us innovate and advocate for um, um, bringing down the price of uh, highest, you know, high-quality drugs and, uh, and uh, medical materials, etc. cetera, because mm-hmm. uh, this is really a problem. And the title of this um, session is, is Ed Effective, you know, and in our view, the best way to be cost-effective is really to provide the best standard quality of care, mm-hmm. because if you provide suboptimal care, uh, the side effects are going to be disastrous. So it mm-hmm. might sound like uh, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, it might sound cost effective in the short term, but in the long run, it's totally devastating. Mm-hmm. So this is what I would ask him. I, the intellectual property issues are real issues for the Bill Gates Foundation, for the pharmaceutical industry. I think he is in a position to influence in the good direction you know more flexibility in patent laws in trade policies that would definitely bring down the cost of drugs good thank you so nancy you're in in a room it's
0: just you and bill so wow. bill what would you tell him well i would
3: first absolutely thank him for putting global health on the map which he has done um, as far as the two investments i would recommend of course he has an incredible command of the facts and the statistics but I would um, point out that WHO has said there's a global health worker shortage of almost 4.25 million health workers. So um, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, where this is the biggest challenge, they're 11% of the world's population. They carry about 25% of the global burden of disease, and yet they have 3% of the world's health workers. And in fact, they ha- there's a shortage of about 1.5 million health workers overall. If you look at the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there's one doctor to every 10,000 people. And in the Americas, there's 25 doctors to every 10,000 people. Afghanistan, 1%, in a, in a country where you have some of the highest maternal mortality, Afghanistan, 1% of the women in Afghanistan have a trained birth attendant available when they are in childbirth and yet so many women die in childbirth. So what does that mean? It comes down to the health worker at the end of the day, no matter how much is invested um, in technology and in vaccines and in diseases, it comes down to the point of delivery. There's this terrible shortage of health workers, period. They, and this can be fixed. This can be solved. It can be done through training, training of mid-level health workers. If we, you know, 80% of the disease and, and, the, and the burden and the kinds of primary health care issues that you see in the developing world can be handled by a mid-level health worker. It doesn't even require a doctor. Plus, there are doctors within, you know, these environments, of course, that just need refresher training. So much can be done around health care training, but there's no really funding mechanism to make that possible. so And then the second piece would be around um, technology. Uh, He uh, he has done a lot in technology, of course, in the health sector. And I would just encourage technology to be used toward this training, to come up with uh, more ways to train people to make health workers available to people in their communities through some of the um, technology nice. changes out there,
0: but so, so. You, you you don't get your meeting with Bill Gates because um, <laughs> he uh, had to leave for uh, another nothing. meeting. So I'd love to turn it to questions, um, and I think there are there's a mic right here. Um, so if you want to just raise your hand, and uh, yes, this gentleman right here, first, and I think we'll take um, let's take two questions at a time, and, and see how we respond. Yes, sir. Could Hi. you tell us your name? And
4: uh, uh, Bill Resnick, and I'm curious about there was an article in the New York Times um, uh, detailing the shift from HIV AIDS care towards other chronic diseases seeing that as more cost-effective and I think maybe you were referring to that um, indirectly but I, I'm just curious about you know some of your comments on that because it seems fairly concerning to me I
0: Meaning that money is shifting away from Yeah, and way. basically yeah.
4: people who were getting treatment may not continue to get treatment. Right, and okay.
0: And there was another question, right? N- Nigel. I'm sorry, not Nigel. Yes, please. Right yes, sir. We're going to take two oh, questions. Oh, two questions. Go. Okay,
5: my question is uh, with the, the connection between conflict, violent conflict, and your work. Mm-hmm. With the thought that when Rotary International set a goal... 25 years ago, to eradicate polio in conjunction with the WHO and UNICEF. Uh, there were, there were uh, national, still are national immunization days to do that. It's largely been successful, although not totally eradicated. Warriors put down their guns, took their children into the, into the clinics on those weekends when, when those children were going to be immunized. Mm-hmm. So war stopped on those national immunization days. What would you recommend to do with, with the warriors? And, and uh, because it's the same as children, that, that, I mean, why is there no talk about ending war or ending conflict or putting in mechanisms that uh, get people to think a little more deeply about what they're doing?
0: Good, great. Neil, can you take that question?
1: The latter one? Yeah. The, the conflict one?
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I'm sure my friends here have a lot to add to that as well i um you know the conflict one um i, I think it is true I, I remember being in sudan when uh it, you know throughout the country um uh, jim grant some people may remember jim grant when he was one of the greatest leaders of unicef for in our community certainly in my lifetime um you know and it was called quarters without conflict and there were these days of immunization in which you know all warring sides would put their guns down and so forth, and, and and go in. It was extremely difficult to sustain. In almost all these cases, they became kind of one-off events. You could get it for a day or two. But what it did do is begin to demonstrate to people that that was possible. And so, I, you know, I certainly think we need to, it's almost been, become unfashionable to, uh, you know, to talk about conflict and uh, peace you know, uh, um, we want to talk about alleviating poverty. Um, and so I, you know, putting peace on the agenda uh, more for all of our organizations, um, you know, I think is critical. And I think we all have, you know, a role to play in being, you know, bridge builders between different sides of the conflict um, you know, providing win-win opportunities so that if you're warring around, you know, national ethnic issues or whatever the, the war is around, that we, through our programs, whether it's our health programs, our microfinance programs, whatever we're doing, that we provide ways that community members can see a common future together. And I, do th- I don't think you can work, in my view, in these conflict areas and really want to address underlying root causes and issues um, without taking on conflict, so i I, I hope and wish and would that you know that, that that peace would come back on the agenda. Uh, I think it was given somewhat of a bad name in the last several years, but it needs to come back very you know very very strongly and there, and I think there's many wonderful examples we could cite um where civil society and ngos and others are the bridge but what i would say is that in in almost all the studies i've seen particularly in the bottom billion that the likelihood as in in poor countries when economies decline the chances of war double of conflict and so you cannot separate you know the growth issue from the conflict issue
3: i just want to add one thing to that. the um and A specific example, so in 1990, um, we started working in um, Angola, and Savimbi. Jonas Savimbi, who was alive at the time, was the big warlord, UNITA, fighting against the um, government of Angola. And we, um, at the time, International Medical Corps had no presence, so we had to reach out and work with local communities to get a sense of what the biggest needs were, what's around child, you know, infant mortality was high, it was around child vaccination, so, we did something that at the time people thought couldn't be done, which was to bring warring factions together, the government um, and people from the government side and people from the United side, into a joint immunization program. We even called it Peace Through Health or something like that. Uh, and it worked just great um, for a couple years. But going to Neil's point, it wasn't sustainable. One of the reasons it wasn't sustainable was because there was an election. Uh, Savimbi lost, he didn't like losing. He controlled most of the resources and the diamonds in that country, so he took the country back to war. And everything we had done regarding this, these collaborative activities collapsed because they went right back into um, a, a very, very violent war. Um, in Congo, we had something called the Days of Tranquility that we, where we partnered with UNICEF. And we, uh, everyone laid on their guns. Our health workers would go in. We'd immunize children um, during that time. Uh, they were polio and different kinds of things we were doing at the time. And, but uh, we were coming back. Our, our vehicles um, f- with our relief workers are coming back from um, a site one day. They get stopped on the road by people. We still don't even know who these people are. They put their AK-47s into the vehicle, and they shot it up, and they killed some of the um, counterpart health workers we worked with. So I think the problem is that even though that there's a lot of things that you can try to do, whether it be large-scale or small-scale anecdotally, there, is a, there are a lot of resources at play in these countries, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of criminal activity that goes around um, in, in, in these countries where people really don't have much of an incentive, those in charge of the resources, whether it be a conflict area or not, to, uh, to see that dying children are helped mm-hmm. because they're more concerned about their own you know, territorial issues or their own controlling the resource issues, et cetera. So I think, as, as Neil said, I think it's critical... But I think it's hard to sustain it when you've got these other factors at play, and I think that's what we're up against. Mm
0: -hmm. So, do you? Does someone want to speak to the question about um, loss of resources for HIV/AIDS?
2: Maybe I can react to that one. Actually, this uh, discussion started with the the global health when the global health initiative plan was set up, and um, uh, at that time, so. uh, malnutrition and neglected disease and mother and child health care was introduced in the global health initiative together with the traditional PEPFAR uh, support for, for HIV. Uh, the thing is that the PEPFAR support was uh, not increased and uh, of course this was compensated by an increasing support to other diseases. So our position on that is of course we, we welcome the attention Given to uh, malnutrition and neglected tropical disease and mother and child healthcare, you know we, we deliver 100,000 babies every year, so we know it's a, it's a it's a real issue. Uh, malnutrition has been uh, we've long advocated for more attention and better quality food aid to tackle malnutrition and neglected disease. Of course, tropical neglected diseases by definition, very, very neglected, and we, we want more attention on that. But we don't want this to happen at the expense of HIV mm-hmm. because uh, there are huge global health needs. We think that we need to address all of them. You know, it would be like, okay, we don't intervene in Haiti because we have another earthquake, you know, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Well, no, unfortunately, we have no choice, right? And uh, mm-hmm. in, in, within our own capacity, we, we need to intervene. So we believe that the governments should continue the fight for HIV mm-hmm. and not at the, uh, and, and at the same time be more aware. So you will say resources are limited, and of course they are limited, but our capacity of innovation is not limited. Mm-hmm. And there are many uh, pros- you know, interesting prospects for more sustainable funding streams like the financial transaction tax, like what UNITED created mm-hmm. a few years ago. So we have some possibilities to provide sustainable funding to these kind of programs mm-hmm. for health. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's no time to quit. There are still 10 million people in need of treatment for HIV. If we don't give them treatment, it's going to cost much more to put them on second line to treat the side effects, and the human and social cost is going to be astronomic. So that's the position that we defend on. Uh. Yeah. Thank you, Sophie.
0: Are there other questions? We're coming to the end of our time. Um, Let's take a couple more, this gentleman over here, and then.
4: Um, Hi, my question is dealing with the reality of resource constraint and also thinking about your choices and specialization. So uh, you already mentioned that MSF has chosen to focus on acute crises. My curiosity is when you're not in a donor-driven environment that's telling you where to allocate resources, either because a crisis has happened or because the Gates Foundation has said, we're going to prioritize this, would you consider focusing more heavily on not on conflict environments? So, for example, on India, where you talk about maternal health, you talk about tuberculosis, malnutrition, the quantity of problems are massive, the government functions slightly better, and the sort of uh, treatments that you folks are able to introduce would have a massive and potentially more sustainable impact on people's health. Mm -hmm. Um, appreciating that there's so much need and it's incredibly emotional and required in conflict areas but i'm thinking about how you would approach resource Mm trade-off
0: good excellent question let's take the one other question the woman right there and then and oh okay right do you have the mic in your hand sorry i can't see Okay. Hi. We'll go first with her and then we'll take your question just next. Uh, Thank Patricia you.
6: Ellis, Women's Foreign Policy Group. Um, I used to be a journalist for the mcneil Era News Hour. So even before Somalia, I remember Ethiopia. And all of a sudden we got taped from the BBC and Ethiopia was a big issue and everyone, Americans were responding and all of that. But during that time, and, and of course what it meant was a lot of other issues, I can second what you said, are mm-hmm. not covered just because there was not video. And I think this is a real problem and there have to be other means. And obviously today with blogs and and other things like that, it might be a little different. But the other point I wanted to raise was that what we found was that people were jogging to get on the air because that meant funding. And I would like to have you address this issue of coordination, collaboration, and competition, um, both You know, whether to get on television or how it works on the ground, Um, because, for example, in Haiti, there are just so many organizations there, and even if you have your own niche, I mean, there is bound to be, you know, people still you know, trying to get attention for their organization and maybe tripping over each other. I, I don't know, but that's
0: my question. Great, excellent question. And the gentleman who has the mic in his hand, you could, let's do your question as well, and then we'll have a response.
7: Yes, I, I work at the World Bank uh, on conflict and fragility, and my question is uh, one of the challenges we face uh, is to get out, get staff to, you know, these uh, hostile environments, even within a place like the World Bank where there are strong incentives. I suspect, you know, you do as well in your organizations and I'm wondering uh, are there other ways, uh, innovative ways, of attracting the best and the brightest to go and work in fragile environments, especially where there are global health challenges. I was just reading this article in the New Yorker. In Somalia, the African UN uh, mission has just one qualified doctor in the area around Mogadishu. Is there a way we can think of some sort of global public service type um, you know, opportunity you can offer um, you know, students in medical schools um, or residents, you know, saying that, look, this is a, also a way to get earned credit for your medical training. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, sort of in some sense broaden the, uh, the, the core of people who can actually go out and, and work in many of these countries on, on these uh, important uh,
3: issues.
0: Great. Excellent questions. Um, anybody want to jump um, on one? I'll jump on the, um, the
3: oh. question around fundraising and emergencies. Uh, the there's certainly been an, a remarkable change in the way money is raised as I mentioned earlier around emergencies because of them playing out on our televisions or blogs or whatever in real time and um, that I think in itself has created both an opportunity but I, I'd say a downside at least for me personally um, that I've been somewhat disappointed by uh, our our general behavior um, in, in that environment First of all, you know we all collaborate on the ground. We're all friends. I mean, we all respect one another's work. And in fact, there's been a lot of effort around building that kind of collaboration and coordination. Sometimes it's country specific, or sometimes it depends on the personalities of the country directors in a particular area. But um, for the most part, um, you know, we've worked with MSF in a number of areas, with Mercy Corps in a number of areas, and it's always been a collegial operational relationship. Uh, and, at, you know, and at the CE level, CEO level, tends to be true. It breaks down, I think, in my opinion, at the fundraising level. And part of that is because we are under tremendous pressure in that golden hour of raising money. And I'm unhappy about that, not only because my group is not good at marketing, which is why many of you may not have heard of International Medical Corps, but because I think it just brings out behavior that is not the best of in any of us. And we, we we know that a lot of the money is going to be raised in those golden hours. So you know, like maniacs, we're trying to get our locals out there and, and then get on the uh, you know the news feeds and get the 800 number out there. And you know, at the same time, we're we're organizing our operational responses, like like we did also in Haiti. We're at the same time saying, well, we, you know, we we got to be here. We have to make sure we're we uh, got coverage there. I was teasing Neil earlier. CNN was covering something about the little boy Monley pulled from the rubble. That, those, that was International Medical Corps teams, and uh, CNN put up Mercy Corps as the, as the one to give to during that whole time. And, uh, and, our, and, our, you know, and I thought to myself, you know, what, what difference does it make? It's the greater good. We went on to the telethon. We did not share in the proceeds, but we went on to the telethon just to help raise money around Haiti. But, uh, but the flip side of that is if you don't have enough money, then you can't do what you feel like you want to do. My organization did not raise enough money in Haiti, and we are there for the long term, and we don't feel we can do enough. So I think that it—I think it, to some extent, it's the reality of what we're dealing with. We have to get out there and we have to raise money during that golden hour, but I, I don't like it. I don't like it because I don't think it brings up the best in us, and I think there's a lot of dysfunction in the way that money is raised, that the you know, la- household names are the ones who are better in marketing, are raising the lion's share of the of the money, and because we're not as advanced in marketing, we're not. So again, personal opinion. Good,
0: Neil.
1: Well, maybe I'll take the resource allocation one because that's and a, I think we, a great question and a quick. But I'll just and but <laughs> I'll just answer it for us. Is that um, you, you know I actually think that, and I put India into that rest of the developing world, even though that's where the numbers are and everyone talks about scale, I don't think that's where we add the greatest value. I think there's tremendous capacity in India. It's sort of the you know it's the laboratory of social innovation in so many ways. There's wonderful Indian NGOs. There are others that you know, I you know, I actually do buy the Paul Collier thesis and I think it is important for the stability of of our planet, that we really find a way to address the bottom billion. The indicators in India and China and Indonesia and so many other places are moving in the right direction, you know, and they could move faster with investment. But I I actually would encourage some of those that are investing in India, because it is a little easier, because it is more stable, and certainly the needs are there to come on and take a little more risk you know, in, the, in, the C, you know, in the CARs of the world, in the Somalias of the world, in the DRCs of the world, because you can do social innovation there as well. And I think if we could bring in a lot of those players who have tended to focus in Bangladesh and in, and in India, um, you know, I think we'd be making more progress, uh, frankly, in terms of the bottom billion.
0: Great. So I think, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've gone a little bit over, but I, I really just want to, us to give a round of applause, you know, Sophie and Nancy and Neil.